Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Dr. Dion. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Refine Your Health. Currently, we are in the month of February, which many know as Black History Month. In addition to it being Black History Month, this month in the medical community is dedicated to heart health, or shall I say it is considered American Heart Month. Therefore, this episode will focus on heart disease, specifically coronary artery disease. I have a special guest joining me for this episode to share his expertise on the subject. My guest is Dr. Denzel Harris. Dr. Harris received his medical training at St. George's University in Granada, his residency and fellowship training in internal medicine and cardiology at the University of New York, Syracuse. Dr. Harris holds multiple board certifications in internal medicine, cardiology, nuclear cardiology, echocardiography, and cardiac CT imaging. His medical practice areas of interest are cardio-oncology and sports cardiology. Currently, he's the chief of cardiology at a local hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina. In addition, he serves as a cardiologist for the professional basketball team, the Charlotte Hornets. Thanks and welcome to the show, Dr. Harris. Thank you for having me, Dr. Dion. Heart disease is a leading cause of death for men and women in the United States. And about 610,000 people die of heart disease in the U.S. every year, according to the Center for Disease Control. And every year, 735,000 have a heart attack. First, I would like to talk about what are the different types of heart disease? Yes, yeah, so cardiovascular disease, which is what we prefer calling it, refers to a wide range of diseases that affects the entire cardiovascular system, the heart, and all the vascular system that surrounds it. And it ranges from diseases of the pump. You know, the heart itself is a pump that pumps blood around the body and can end up being damaged. And you end up with either a weak pump or a stiff pump, congestive heart failure. We have um, some electrical conditions where the electricity of the heart's not doing what it's supposed to. You have fast or slow heart rhythms. You know, people commonly hear about AFib. We have some valve problems. There's a series of valves that keep blood flowing through the heart in the right direction. When those become diseased, you have a wide range of valvular heart disease. But as you highlighted, uh, by far more important than those are uh, what we call atherosclerotic heart disease or coronary artery disease which refers to a, a group of diseases that uh, really affects the entire vascular system where plaque gets deposited in your arteries. Okay. Well, you say atherosclerosis. Can you explain a little bit more what that is and what different parts of the body that it can affect in addition to the heart? Yeah, so atherosclerosis really is a process that starts where you, you know, a perfect storm happens where you have the right circumstances and then a, a cascade of events happen. An artery gets damaged, cholesterol gets deposited in the artery, your body has a reaction to sort of seal that cholesterol off and ends up making a, a plaque in that artery. And, and this could happen in the arteries of your heart and the arteries of your neck or your leg. It could pretty much happen everywhere in your body. And what makes up that plaque that you mentioned that eventually leads to coronary artery disease? So uh, again, the, the initial insult probably is some cholesterol being deposited in the artery. But then there's some inflammatory response, you know, your body in trying to sequester that cholesterol brings in some white blood cells and some platelets and some other cells. And so it's a mixture of cholesterol and inflammatory response from your body. Okay. And as far as 
We talk about the process of heart attack. Many know that coronary artery disease places people at risk for a heart attack. So from what I was able to get from my research, in the U.S., every 40 seconds, someone experiences a heart attack. So how does coronary artery disease lead to a heart attack? You explain the cascade of processes. How does that go from presenting with that cascade to how someone may present with symptoms? So in general, there are a range of symptoms folks present with. And before we get to a heart attack, some folks may show up with what we call angina, or other folks would say angina, which is mm-hmm. a, a discomfort in the chest. It's a sort of pressure that happens under the sternum, comes mm-hmm. with exertion, relents with rest, and, and that's in its typical form. There are other forms where somebody may uh, just present a little winded or tired, and that happens from an artery narrowing down over time. In terms of a heart attack, what happens there is a plaque breaks open and suddenly the artery clots off. Presentation there can happen randomly at rest. You'd get a heavy discomfort, maybe break into a sweat, generally feel nauseous, unwell. Most people kind of get the sensation that something serious is going on, but that happens by a, a plaque breaking open all of a sudden and a blood clot forming in that artery, occluding it. In other parts of the body, so if it happens in the brain, you start mm-hmm. getting stroke-like symptoms you know, maybe slurring, maybe garbled speech, weakness Mm -hmm. on one side. If it happens in the legs, you start experiencing what we call claudication, uh, tightness in the calves or in the thigh when you you walk. So it depends on on where it happens. The manifestation is is different. But again, it, it ranges from that sort of angina, claudication, stroke, heart attack, with probably stroke and heart attack being the most acute manifestations where you get a plaque suddenly rupturing and causing occlusion of an artery. Okay. You mentioned that, hey, some people can have symptoms or they may be slow developing symptoms in regards to heart attack. I came across a statistic that said that one in five heart attacks can be silent. And so if they're silent, can they still do damage to the heart? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we we do have people who go on to have diseases like diabetes and and neuropathy and, and particularly in women, you know, I think sometimes silent is, is probably not the right word because it happens. Maybe the patient has some symptom which they don't identify correctly. You know, the event happens and then later on we find out, oh, they've had a heart attack. And, and then in reality, probably they did have some subtle symptom that, that they ignored. And I think that's why it's sort of important to, to recognize in certain groups such as women or diabetics, subtler symptoms such as, you know, shortness of breath, maybe some some reflux type sensation, um, just a general feeling of not feeling well, maybe symptoms that represent a heart attack that's being missed. But certainly when these silent or misidentified heart attacks happen, they can go on to cause significant damage. Okay. So let's get a little bit more specific in regards to the signs and symptoms of a heart attack. So you kind of just touched on it a little bit about women and diabetics. So can you give me an overall like potential presentation of symptoms that people, some of my listeners need to definitely look out for? Yeah, again, it depends on, on who you are. Again, in its most typical form, it's a, it's a discomfort that's kind of heavy under the sternum, maybe mm-hmm. going up to the jaw, maybe going to the arm. Uh, usually one breaks into a sweat, something we call diaphoresis, mm-hmm. may associate it with some, some nausea. Sometimes it feels like a GI symptom. Sometimes it feels like a fullness in the stomach, maybe you can even feel like reflux. So if you have a sensation in your stomach, then you have reflux, but it feels slightly different. You feel unwell. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things with a heart attack. Most people have an instinct that something's not quite right. So I think sometimes we have to trust that instinct that, hey, I'm, I'm feeling something. You know, when I trained in cardiology in the right patient, we said anything above the waist could be a heart attack. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes the symptoms really vary. But again, in its most typical form, it's a discomfort that, that sort of is substernal going to the neck of the arm associated with some of these other symptoms. But for high-risk patients, if you're not feeling well, you have some discomfort, maybe above the navel and somewhere in the chest region that gives you the impression that something's not quite right, I think uh, it's worth checking out because you can certainly have an atypical presentation. You gave an example of, you know, the reflux. What are some other atypical presentations? And is it more common in, let's say, women versus men? So men tend to present typically, they tend to have pain. Again, women, you know, they, they come in, they tell you I've been fatigued for a couple of days. I've just not felt well. I've felt ill. Some of these presentations, it's tough. I mean, we don't want everybody every time they feel something running to the ER for it. But I think mm-hmm. that's where understanding your risk also comes in. Because, you know, if I'm a 30-year-old jogging, no diabetes, no high blood pressure, no risk factors, and I feel a little sharp pain in my chest, I probably ought not to run for the ER for that, even though it's, you know, it's an atypical symptoms. Versus if you're a 60-year-old diabetic, smoker, hypertensive, you know, you might want to pay attention to a more subtle symptom, such as nausea or just a general ill feeling or, or a vague discomfort in your chest that you might want to otherwise ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a lot of risk factors for coronary artery disease, you might want to pursue uh, checking it out. Okay. In regards to you said checking it out. So when should someone with particular signs and symptoms say it's 911 versus, oh, I probably need to wait to go see my physician to get my signs and symptoms checked out? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer because I think it's sort of individually based. It's a very complex range of, of symptoms. And, and I think In my experience dealing with this, I have to give patients uh, credit for their instincts. Most Mm -hmm. people who have something going on know that they're having a symptom that's not typical for them, just doesn't feel right. It's been there for uh, more than 30, 40 minutes. They generally feel unwell. So I'd say, you know, certainly if you have typical symptoms, if you have pain in your chest, radiating up to your neck and your arm, you're diaphoretic, definitely go to the ER. But also, if you have subtler symptoms that you think just are bothersome to you, that's not your usual symptom, I'd say use your instincts and and veer on the side of checking it out. Okay. So you mentioned some of the risk factors in regards to development of coronary artery disease. What are some of those risk factors? Can you just clarify those again for my listeners? So I think, you know, I kind of lump them into two categories. There there are risk factors that we're not in control of, you know, so um, we get old every 10 years, our risk of heart attack and stroke doubles, our arteries just become a little more damaged with time. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about that. Males are more likely to get cardiac disease than females, or at least they get it earlier than females, and, and there's nothing you can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, genetics, you know, you have parents. What we consider a family history of premature CAD would be a first-degree relative, say a, a mother or a sister below the age of 65, female relative below 65, or a first-degree male relative that would be a brother or a dad who had a heart attack below 55. Those are really strong, strong risk factors. So somebody who has these first-degree relatives, heart attack before these ages, you could be at three, four times the risk as somebody else. So those are strong risk factors. Other family members, you know, your grandparents, they all factor in. It's not as strong, but certainly if you have first-degree relatives. So these are the ones that I say that are 
they are what they are. You inherit them or you were born a man or you're getting older. That's uh, not modifiable. But then there is a whole list of modifiable risk factors. So smoking is, is very irritating to your arteries. And that's definitely something you can do something about. Cholesterol, high cholesterol is a very strong risk factor. Diabetes. Diabetes is in some ways considered the equivalent of, of having a heart attack. And, and so making sure stuff like blood pressure is very well controlled in a diabetic is, is important. Blood pressure itself is a pretty important risk factor. And, and I think in recent years, we've come to realize, well, maybe we need to be stricter than we were before. That Maybe for certain groups of patients that maybe when we get to 130 over 80, it's time to start treating obesity, stress, and there's a long list we can go on. Some, some people have inflammatory diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis that, that, that also put them at risk. So you mentioned high blood pressure, and I was looking at a statistic that one in three adults have high blood pressure, and that's roughly 75 million people in the United States. So what is considered normal blood pressure, and how let's say, what would a person's blood pressure, what should it be if you've been diagnosed with coronary artery disease? So 130 systolic blood pressure and 80 diastolic blood pressure is considered below that is considered normal. So when you get above 130, it's considered abnormal. And when you get above 80, it's considered abnormal. The recommendations are for patients who are at risk, either you diabetic, have high cholesterol, have other risk factors, or you already have some some of atherosclerotic heart disease, mm-hmm. that, that at that range, at the 130 range, we should start giving you medicines. At the 120 range, we should be telling you, hey, 120 to 30, you should be getting it down below 120. At the 130 range, we should start giving you medicines for it. For somebody who's not at risk, and a lot of what we do in the cardiovascular space mm-hmm. kind of goes hand in hand with risk to him at most risk, the interventions are a little bit more stringent. So if you're 30 years old and you're not, or you have no risk factors, then, you know, we, we don't start introducing medicines until we, until we get to 140 over 90. Mm-hmm. And in that 130 to 140 range, we set up push more lifestyle modifications. So the numbers we push for kind of depends on your risk. And a lot of what we do in the cardiovascular space kind of goes along those lines. You know, we do a risk evaluation Mm -hmm. and where your numbers, what numbers we recommend really uh, would depend partly on what your risk turns out to be. And if I'm more of an elderly patient, does that range change as far as when you would consider starting medications? No, it it doesn't. We see, you know, it it again, based on risk, we, we do understand there's some limitations with older patients. You know, some of them don't tolerate high blood pressure medicines as well. And, and then you get into a whole different set of circumstances where they start suffering from symptoms of, of low blood pressure and kind of not tolerating the therapies well because they get dizzy. So there are some nuances when it gets to the older population, but uh, our goals don't change in terms of what we'd hope their blood pressure to be. So I've seen like some articles about, you know, blood pressures in the elderly, let's say 65 and above, 150 over 90 or less should be the goal. So do you consider starting medications? You know, there's a, there are recent trials that really question that practice and we've practiced like, like this for a long time. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of recent data that suggests we're short changing older patients by allowing them to run such high blood pressures and that we should be just as aggressive 
as in everybody else. And that if we do run into problems with a lack of tolerability because of dizziness, that maybe we can individualize it and back off therapy. But there's definitely an advantage to being aggressive, even in folks above 65, that's for sure. Okay. And for my listeners who are not clear on what is a systolic and diastolic, the systolic number that Dr. Harris is referring to is the top number when you get a blood pressure reading and the diastolic is the lower number. So you mentioned high cholesterol and is there good cholesterol and bad cholesterol in relation to our bodies? And what should our levels be in regards to good cholesterol? Yeah, so th- there are numbers again for, you know, cholesterol has many subsets. There's total cholesterol, good cholesterol, triglycerides, bad cholesterol. And there are different targets for different groups of people. And it really, again, depends on, on your risk. And so calculating somebody's risk for heart disease and what it is. And, and I think the more important decision to make is kind of at what level of risk do we start giving you drugs that are known to to decrease your cardiovascular risk. And that's kind of more the mindset rather than than chasing numbers is that mm-hmm. we're all at varying levels of risk for atherosclerotic heart disease. Uh, drugs like statins squarely show a benefit, maybe 30 as much as sometimes 40% risk reduction. So the question becomes at what level of risk do we now give you a, a drug for risk reduction? In certain populations, certainly there's some there's some numbers we shoot for but I think for the general population, that's a little less useful than knowing that maybe you ought to have your risk calculated and, and that at some point, if your risk justifies it, that you should be on a medicine to modify that risk. And so what are some of those risks? Is it what you kind of mentioned earlier that a person should look into with their primary care physician determining starting a medication? So, yeah, the way it works is is that, you know, if you're 20 years or older and adult and you show up to your doctor, they should run down all these risks factors I mentioned and kind Mm -hmm. of address them individually. Okay. When you get to be about the age of 40, there's actually a calculator that you get put into. So your primary care doctor would take, you know, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, whether or not you have diabetes, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you're a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And they put it into a calculator that's based on historical data. And based on your profile, they can say, hey, historically, based on this database, that somebody with your risk factors or risk profile has X chance of getting a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years, you know, be 10% chance of getting a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. And a lot of what happens from that point on depends on what that number comes back at. So if you're Mm -hmm. 40 years old and you show up to your doctor, they should be telling you what your 10-year risk for a heart attack and a stroke is. And if they don't, you should probably ask. And a lot of what happens from there depends on that number. Okay. And so let's say they do get a number. What should be an ideal number? I know you say we shouldn't chase numbers, but what would be an, a number so that yeah, we, we should look for? So again, if you're below 5% risk of heart attack or stroke in 10 years, you, you're probably okay to, to do some lifestyle changes. And we can talk about what those are. If you're between five and seven and a half, you probably know what we call a borderline zone and, and it requires a conversation there. When it gets above seven and a half, between 7.5 and 20, that's kind of intermediate. And really the recommendations there are to start introducing some medicines mm-hmm. and uh, such as statins. And, and if you don't want to take drugs, maybe uh, we can do some additional testing to, to sort of help you decide whether you can wait or you should really pull the trigger on some drugs. And definitely if your risk is more than 20, 
very strong case for you to start taking some medications to modify your risk. Okay. You know, we go to a doctor's office, we get these blood level readings regarding our cholesterol. So what levels are considered our good cholesterol? What is considered our bad cholesterol levels? So yeah, you have stuff like the LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd say any number above 130 in anybody is a pretty high number. You know, your good cholesterol, which should probably be somewhere upward of 50. And, and there are different numbers for men and women, but mm-hmm. an HDL cholesterol upward of 50 would be reasonable. Again, I think if you want to ask your doctor something that's actionable, mm-hmm. really less obsession with the number and more obsession with your risk, because I think your risk really drives what he does or how aggressive he needs to be with, with medicines. And the number will be reflected in that calculated risk that you get uh, as to what your 10-year risk of heart attack and stroke is. I think if you go to the doctor and you're not walking away knowing what your 10-year risk of heart attack and stroke is, then you should pursue that number. Okay. And you mentioned also diabetes is a risk factor. And you also mentioned that it's like an equivalent to having coronary artery disease. Why is that? So there's a study that was done once that showed if you take somebody who's had diabetes Mm-hmm. And they've never had a heart attack, never, ever had any heart event. And you take somebody who's already had a heart attack, but have no diabetes. Mm-hmm. And you look at the incidence for getting another heart attack or dying, it was the same. Wow. So you take a guy who's had no diabetes and he's had one heart attack. And you take a guy who's just had diabetes, no other events. Mm-hmm. They're at the same risk of getting a future heart attack or dying from a heart attack. So. In that sense, we kind of say it's the equivalent because, you know, a diabetic without a heart attack pretty much is at the same risk that a non-diabetic who's already had a heart attack or a cardiac event is at. So that's where that terminology comes from. So how is coronary artery disease typically managed if it's severe? You know, they go to the ER and they're having heart attack symptoms. So that's probably when they'll encounter a person like yourself. So, yeah, if you come to the hospital, definitely doctors and hospitals and cardiologists have a watches of procedures and, and things they can do, stents and bypasses and, and all sorts of stuff. However, my general tendency is to say that medical therapy is probably the single most important thing that, that a patient would encounter. Whatever we do at a hospital level to relieve a blockage or to treat a, a heart attack in, in action Mm-hmm. Is, is really of limited benefit. And it does benefit the patient in the moment. But the true bang for your buck, long term, living long, not getting recurrent heart attacks, depends on what the patients do regarding taking their medications. There are a whole cocktail of medicines, aspirin, statins, specific type of blood pressure medicines we may use that really show the bulk of benefit for managing atherosclerotic heart disease over time. So I spend a lot of time emphasizing the, the significance because the cool part is what happens in the hospital. You know, a patient gets a stand, they feel great, they come back four years, they get another one and another one and another one. Mm-hmm. And in bigger picture, you're really not doing anything for them. Mm-hmm. But patients somehow, they fail to sometimes comply with the stuff that really is shown to prevent this stuff from reoccurring, which is a lot of the medical therapies that happen. So there's a lot that happens in the hospital end, and if you get coronary artery disease, I think you're going to come and you, you, we'd probably help you. But from a patient perspective, I, I really want to highlight the importance of kind of following through with a lot of the medicines you get prescribed. You get a heart attack, automatically you're probably going to leave the hospital with four or five pills. And, and for some people, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. And you know, right. 
but I can't highlight enough the need to actually comply with these four or five pills that you walk away with. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think in the long run, that's what's really treating your atherosclerotic heart disease. Okay. And you mentioned, you know, aspirin and recently over the past year or so, you've been hearing like in the news and certain people should remain on aspirin or it's not initially what we thought that certain groups should be on an aspirin. So what is the current recommendations regarding use of a daily aspirin outside of someone being, you know, diagnosed with coronary artery disease? Yeah. So again, I think we got to be clear on that. If you, if you have any atherosclerotic heart disease that's been proven to be obstructive, Mm-hmm. So you've had a stent, you've had a bypass, you've had a carotid event, you have an aneurysm, you have peripheral artery disease, you definitely benefit from aspirin and should continue taking your aspirin. Mm-hmm. I think the category that's in question is what we call primary prevention. So, you know, there's a time that you turn 55 and amount everything else you take with your Centrum Silver, you took an aspirin because everybody was supposed to benefit from taking an aspirin. And that came out of some studies that was done in the 1950s and repeated over time that showed that in the average population beyond a certain age, if you took an aspirin, it reduced your chances of getting a heart attack or stroke. But I don't think that has changed. The data still proves that today, that anybody beyond a certain age who takes an aspirin will have less heart attack or stroke. What's changed in the last five or 10 years is a lot of data that says we've underestimated the significance of bleeding. Mm -hmm. aspirin will cause you to bleed. And as a rule, you probably would have more downside from bleeding than you've been from the heart attack and stroke reduction, which is still there. So for most people, the bleeding risk really outweighs the benefit of taking the aspirin. Mm -hmm. So as a general rule, if you've not yet had an, an event, any kind of atherosclerotic event, you probably shouldn't be taking an aspirin. Now, there's a very, very small subset of patients who are Mm -hmm. very low risk for bleeding and very high risk for an atherosclerotic event, whom we still consider giving an aspirin to. But that's such a small subset. And I think if you're in that category, your doctor's probably going to tease you out and tell you that you should, but you shouldn't be just popping an aspirin if you've not yet had atherosclerotic heart disease. And I think that, again, stems purely because we're starting to realize that bleeding is a bigger problem than we previously thought. Okay. Also, you mentioned, you know, people with diagnosis of coronary disease being on aspirin, statins, and some of them aren't able to tolerate statins because they complain of maybe some joint complaints, muscle complaints. Are there alternatives available for such patients? And what are those that you all choose to use in treating this? Yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of things over time that's not proven to be helpful. You know, we've we've tried many things, and I think that's where the science of randomized data comes in. You know, we do these trials, you give a drug, you don't, and you look for real hard outcomes. Does it make people live longer? Does it prevent heart attacks? And, And statins, by way and far have been just outstanding in their ability to reduce heart attack and and strokes. Again, somewhere to the order of 30 or 40% reduction by pretty much every statin study we've we've done. And and not many drugs have have shown that. Mm -hmm. More recently, we have a couple drugs, a couple alternatives we are able to use. There's a little pill called Zedia we use now that there's some data maybe in the 10 to 15% reduction rate for events. And more recently, we've got some injectable drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors that are showing a lot of benefit, still expensive, a couple shots per month, but these drugs are catching on and becoming more accessible and more available. Mm -hmm. And so we are starting a lot more patients on these medicines. And I think 
we're spending a lot of time trying to work through some of these side effects that people have. And I tell them, hey, just don't quit it. You know, there, we do alternative days. We try various supplements like CoQ10. But we do still spend a lot of time uh, encouraging patients to take their statins because of the net benefit of it. And then, then there are some alternatives. And I think we're going to have more alternatives over time. So you mentioned one of the alternatives is CoQ10. And you see so many commercials about CoQ10. And when you go to the different stores, that's something that's popular now, CoQ10. Can you explain what that is and how does that benefit some patients? So in and of itself, I don't think the benefit in terms of reducing atherosclerotic events is is significant. Again, the the place in which we use it, because it it does help with some of the side effects, particularly the achiness. So I, I think that's where we we use it most. Somehow, you, you know, your CoQ10 gets deplenished with statin therapy. And so supplementing it does help with the achiness and using about maybe 200 milligrams uh, daily. And that's the capacity in which we use it. I wouldn't use it independent just for, for risk reduction, but just to help with the tolerability of taking a statin. Okay. So it's used in conjunction with the statin. And you also mentioned as far as blood pressure medications with managing coronary artery disease. And what are those? So it depends. You know, again, it gets a little nuanced here. And I think, you know, every provider is a little different. But for folks who just have a heart attack, you know, the, a drug like a beta blocker, which is not a commonly used blood pressure pill, we kind of you would use a drug like that. Okay. It is not the world's most effective blood pressure pill, but it's uh, in, in the setting of a, a recent coronary event. It has its its usefulness. So most providers are on top of that, and I think uh, would tailor these therapies to kind of suit folks who have a, an event. I, I think from a patient perspective, kind of understanding the importance to comply with, with some of these drugs is, is very important. And so patients are on these medications. Once they are diagnosed with a coronary artery disease, are they on these medications for a lifetime? Or is it something that, hey, we're treated for a certain period of time and they're able to come off? Yeah, there are some medicines, again, like, for instance, the beta blocker that, that you could come off. There are certain versions of blood thinners you come off after mm-hmm. a year. And then there are some medicines you're going to be on for life. You've probably said statin a hundred times now during this interview, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> drugs like your statins probably here to stay, as is your aspirin. So. Okay. In regards to medical therapy management, that's for coronary artery disease events and the disease process. But also talk about, is there any disparity between different racial groups compared to others as far as outcomes with coronary artery disease from your standpoint? Well, we could talk all day about disparities in in healthcare, but I try to summarize what I think about disparities as it respects to coronary artery disease. And and there are two things. So, So there are some populations that are more at risk for coronary artery disease because of a genetic predisposition. So we know that Southeast Asians have significantly more coronary artery disease and are probably at the highest risk. So if you were born in India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, that part of the world, you're you're at highest risk and you probably need to know that and you need to be really aggressive about modifying your risk factors. Now, if you look at the U.S. population, minority population, African-American population, Latino population, more likely to have a higher burden of disease, more likely to do poorly when they get the disease. Again, it's a complex topic, but I, I think there's at least three factors at play. I think there are three components to, to this. One is the 
conditions of our lives, right? I mean, you know, access to the right types of foods, access to exercise equipment and space, time to exercise, education as it affects our ability to know what to eat and how to care for ourselves, the stress levels and the communities we live in and how they impact our physiologic stress. So the condition of our lives play a, a big, and that's a socioeconomic question. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there is access to healthcare. You know, minority populations have less access to healthcare. They have less insurance, less access to doctors, less access to hospitals, and and that plays a role in the burden of disease. And then thirdly, I, I think there is the the disparity that kind of comes up when the minority meets the healthcare system. You know, I think we have a, a growing body of data that that informs us that that if you're a minority, like an African American that when you show up in the ER with coronary artery disease, that you, you're less likely to get a stent. You're less likely to get a stent in a timely fashion. You're less likely to get your pain medicine uh, or the same amount of pain medicines as your Caucasian counterparts. And that's after, you know, you factor in socioeconomics and education. And after you factor in for everything, there's still a disparity that's there. And so whether we like to face it or not, that points to the fact that there's some built-in biases in the system that we also need to address. So, you know, there's a there's a significant gap in, in disease burden, significant gap in outcome. I think it's on multiple different levels, societal level, healthcare level. But I think the patient needs to be aware of that. And that is if you show up and you're a minority, you need to know that maybe these disparities exist. And, and at least part of it is, is because maybe there is some bias in the system. Mm-hmm. And so one can advocate for oneself when one shows up. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And that part of it, some of the stuff you can't, you know, help as a physician is for some of the socioeconomic issues and maybe some of the stressors that come along with that. But as a physician, I am a big advocate for patients advocating for themselves when they enter the healthcare system. So definitely if they feel like they're not getting their questions answered, then they need to find another doctor. They need to find another hospital until they're basically heard to make sure that they feel comfortable and feel like they are having their questions answered. So I definitely appreciate that. And I think overall, from what you're saying as well, I think there's going to have to be a change as far as education from not only the patient themselves being, you know, being more aware of their healthcare problems and advocating for themselves. But I think also within the healthcare system where we educate the people within the system to be more aware of different cultures and backgrounds and how to approach different populations. Yeah, well, I mean, there is proof that whether we think there's a, we have a bias or not, the data is pointing out that some of these d- differences can only be based on, on maybe intrinsic biases we may not even know that we have. Right, unconsciously. That's true as well. Let's transition a little bit to we know how it's currently managed as far as coronary artery disease. So how do we prevent it? We've heard all this information from you. Like how can we prevent, you know, ourselves from getting coronary artery disease? Yeah, well, that's by far the most important question here of the day. I think if if you're a patient, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I tell you the importance of this is that there's a significant percentage, 30% of people when they first present with it, they present with a heart attack or they die. 
So there is no do-over for a lot of people. The first time they present, it's with a fatal event. And so in, in a condition that presents with a certain fraction of people dying on presentation, the only way to treat it is to, is to prevent it. And in terms of what patients can, can do for themselves, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, quitting smoking and, and getting all these things treated if you have them, the diabetes, the hypertension. A lot of it centers around diet and exercise. In, in the exercise space, we you know, any sort of activity counts, right? So Mm -hmm. climbing stairs, just being active all day, being outdoors, parking your car further away from the building and walking, all of that counts. And and, and there's benefit to all of that. Mm -hmm. But there's a fair amount of data that says we should be getting about 150 minutes of moderate level exercise per week. So you should be getting about 30 minutes five times per week or 50 minutes three times per week. And what is moderate exercise? It depends on your age. You know, if you're 40 years old, you probably ought to be jogging. If you're 75 years old, maybe brisk walking is moderate exercise. And, you know, some amount of resistance training is probably also useful. But there's new data that says maybe if we're getting as little as 90 minutes of really aggressive exercise, so that's the people who are running and doing high-intensity exercise, Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a number that we should try to get over per week. Okay. In the diet space, that's far more controversial. I'd have to say that it depends on, on your goal. And, and that's a tough one because I face this dilemma with patients every day. And, and they have a goal to lose weight. And I have a goal of good cardiovascular health. Right. And sometimes it doesn't meet. Sometimes a, a great cardiovascular diet isn't really the diet that they want to subscribe for weight loss. And, and, and I will say, though, mm-hmm. I think for the most part, you can align a good cardiovascular diet and a weight loss diet. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, a, a Mediterranean diet, a DASH diet, which is lots of fruits and vegetables, lean white meats if you have meats, chicken, turkey, fish, avoid saturated fats, so avoid your red meats, your fatty porks, your fried foods. That's kind of the core of the diet we push. You know, I get asked a lot about the keto diet, for instance, which, Correct. which, is, a, which is a weight loss diet and, and ketosis works it causes people to lose weight and i'd say if that's your goal there are certain types of unsaturated fats you can try instead of having instead of going for bacon and saturated fats at least try to put some unsaturated fats in there you know mm-hmm. uh, avocados and and other types of fish and salmon and and maybe you can have that diet work for you where it's not as harmful as you know a guy who goes on keto-saturated fat diet and comes in and his cholesterol is four times what it was the last time we, we saw him. So right. I, I think there's a way to, to meld the, the weight loss goal and the, and the cardiovascular health goal, but just purely from a cardiovascular standpoint, data strongly leans towards something like a, a Mediterranean diet. Just a couple of plug and a couple of other foods. There's some poop foods that are not saturated fats that are probably just high in cholesterol and probably not great to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like egg yolks and... Uh, and shellfish, shrimp, and, and lobster, and these foods, they're not necessarily fat. They don't have saturated fats, but they're high in pure cholesterol content and probably not best from a cardiovascular standpoint either. And you mentioned the DASH diet. You hear about that a lot in regards to heart health. So actually what that is, what does that stand for? And kind of explain a little bit more for my listeners, please. Yeah, so you, uh, it's really a diet we use for hypertension. 
it's really a diet that's meant to to lower hypertension. And in some ways, it's almost identical to the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. It really is based in high in fruits and vegetables, high potassium foods, and it has been proven to lower blood pressure. There's some aspects of of the Mediterranean diet, such as wine, that may not be included in the DASH diet. But they pretty much kind of, again, the core of both diets are essentially the same, high in fruits and vegetables, sort of no saturated fats. And when you mention the Mediterranean diet, is it the more the type of oils people use for their foods that kind of differs from how the DASH diet is? Yeah, again, yeah, that Mediterranean type, olive oil and other stuff like that. You know, there there's a lot of advantages to, to eating berries and other foods. So, and then people, you know, I'm getting the diet question from multiple angles because, you know, people are not only eating for heart health, they're they're there are all these anti-inflammatory things people are interested in. So as a general rule, I think if we can agree that if our diet con- composes mainly of fruits, vegetables, and some and some lean protein, I think just about 95% of people can agree that that's a pretty good diet. So when patients come to you, what do you tell them about the consumption of salt per day? Because I know that's a big thing in our field that we have to make sure that when we're trying to make sure that we encourage healthy lifestyles, low salt. So how much salt people should be consuming in a day? So that's different. You know, I mean, the average mm-hmm. person probably consumes closer to seven to 10 grams of salt per day. You wow. Know, maybe maybe four to five grams of salt for an average healthy person is not an unreasonable diet. Now you start again throwing in things like hypertension mm-hmm. and we drag that down and we say, hey, get that down closer to two. There's data that says if you can get down to 1.5 grams of sodium per day, then that's really going to do good for your blood pressure. So average healthy person not dealing with hypertension, not dealing with congestive heart failure. If you're getting somewhere around 4 grams uh, of sodium per day, I'm not going to beat up on you. You start having any kind of issues with blood pressure and and heart failure, and then uh, I'm dragging you down closer to 1.5 grams of sodium per day. And you mentioned the Mediterranean diet, you could uh, consume alcohol. Is that part of a healthy lifestyle as well? Or is it just, you know, how much alcohol that you may consume is the issue? Yeah, and and there's some controversy there. I'd say Mm -hmm. I don't advocate that anybody drinks, right? Whatever Mm -hmm. little benefit that red wine may be proven, there's so many downsides to alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely do not advocate alcohol consumption. I don't think I've looked at any data that could convince me that asking somebody to add alcohol to the diet is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, if you're going to drink, maybe we know that two alcoholic beverages, two glasses of red wine per day for a man is Mm -hmm. probably where we ought to cut it off. And certainly one alcoholic beverage per day for a woman is the number which would probably be acceptable. And uh, one can argue might even have a little benefit. Okay. So listeners, you heard it here. Limit your alcohol intake, period. So it's not to encourage you to consume a bunch of alcohol and thinking that it's going to be heart healthy. So no, two beverages for men, if any, and one alcoholic beverage for a woman. So thanks for clarifying that for my listeners, for sure. Before we wrap up today, I just wanted to ask you a question in regards to people who've been diagnosed with coronary artery disease. Are there any potential long-term complications related to this condition, even if they are on medical therapy? Yeah, well, I mean, naturally, it can, it can progress over time and, and they can end up with 
further complications, congestive heart failure, you know, disabling long-term angina. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many ways this can go in. You know, we see people with peripheral artery disease ending up with amputations, you know, people with stroke ending up with a lot of disability. And and so it it could have pretty devastating outcomes. I tell patients almost daily, Mm -hmm. whatever you have, believe me, it can get worse. There's always a worse version. So if you think you've got CAD or in a couple of pills, you feel good. Just know that if, if you don't take care of it, it could get a whole lot worse. So basically just encouraging people to f- make sure that they're going out, having those routine annual physicals. If they have any subtle symptoms that they should seek medical attention is key. And if they're diagnosed with coronary artery disease that if they're put on medical therapy by specialists or even continue to be monitored by their primary care physician, that they're compliant with those recommendations is pretty much what I've been gathering from our conversation today. 100%. I think, uh, again, a compliance, compliance, getting your risk factors where they should be. I mean, it's a disease really that is largely modifiable. And so diet, exercise, weight loss, and if you diagnose complying with medical therapy, again, This is a field that is very mature. I think we've got a lot of good scientific data about what works. And uh, it's a partnership. You know, people will have side effects. People will have uh, everything's a partnership. It's your body. Mm -hmm. But uh, just bear in mind that these drugs are beneficial and that if you work with your provider, I think most times they're they're willing to work with you to find the the right cocktail of therapies that's going to give you the best result long term. Excellent. Well, I definitely want to thank you for taking time out to share with my listeners your expertise in this area. I've been getting feedback that a lot of people wanted to, you know, learn more about heart disease. And I figured February Heart Health Month, why not discuss it now? Thank you. And and hopefully somebody can gather something useful from this. Excellent. Well, listeners, that wraps up this episode of Refine Your Health. Definitely, if you found it to be helpful, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. And please leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. And this is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.